We set out from real active men and on the basis of their real life processes. We demonstrate the development of the ideological reflex and echoes of this life process. The phantoms formed in the human brain are also, necessarily, supplements of their material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. Marx and Engels in the German Ideology. Welcome to another episode of my solo podcast. Um, a couple things. First off, I'm changing it to Liv Agar or the Liv Agar podcast. That's going to be my like pen name in relation to some of the slightly more serious, I guess you could call it, philosophical uh, stuff that I do online. So all the dumb things are going to be under Liv Posting and stuff I take more seriously is the pen name Liv Agar. So my Substack, Medium, SoundCloud, Patreon, all that is going to be Liv Agar. L-I-V-A-G-A-R um, and everything else is still live posting. Anyways, the this episode is going to be on a couple things. Firstly, a reading of Zizek and how Zizek would understand the Capitol Hill protests and also an understanding of the limitations of that reading and an understanding of Marx and of the ideas of ideology, of science, of false consciousness as he uses them in a different way in a way that can embolden our analysis and our understanding of the world. Within Herbert's Guide to Ideology, Zizek has his classic remarks that, quote, I am already eating from the trash can all the time. The name of this trash can is ideology. This has stuck with many as representing the obfuscatory powers of ideology. Ironically, Zizek's pop philosophy has been generally conceived of as a reversal of his actual position on the Marxist concept of ideology. People imagine Zizek to say that ideology blinds an individual to the world's true objective situation through false consciousness. For Zizek, this model of ideology is outdated. If the realm of ideology exists purely within a disruption of knowledge, a lie that obfuscates the truth, then we exist in a post-ideological society. We live in a society where no one believes anything, and everyone is cynical, and ideology cannot trick those who are so cynical. Yet, for Zizek, ideology goes deeper than this traditional reading. There is no real objective world that can simply be revealed through the traditional model of ideological critique. There is no unmasking of a lie whispered by the capitalist into the worker's ear, which reveals the truth. On Zizek's account, ideology works on an unconscious level, generating a group fantasy that even structures the real which traditional ideological critique attempts to reveal. If our real baseline reality is itself ideological, then this traditional model of ideological critique doesn't work at all. Ideology is present in the realm of the unconscious and through how the libido is moderated, through the symbolic, before conscious thought is even rendered possible. The Capitol Hill protests, or insurrection, or coup, or whichever empty signifier you wish to attribute to it, represents a wondrous confirmation of Zizek's philosophical project. The ideological position that they do not know it, but they are doing it, is seen on proud display in the goalless, chaotic mob which temporarily occupied the American Temple of Democracy. There seems to be a desire to project onto this mob a grand plan for a fascistic takeover which may have been inches away from succeeding. Yet what we see in the actual content of the belief systems of most of those who joined the crowd was an ironic, illegible, fascistic static. No coherent goal or plan. 
no way of getting even close to achieving the various incoherent goals and objectives that populated the crowd. Is this moment not an example of ideology functioning expressly when there is a lack of belief? Those in the mob simply showed up as they were told to do by their father, Donald Trump. Simply put, there was no goal because they had all trusted their father to figure it out for them. The ideology is not in the belief systems themselves, but the base level reality that structured the vast array of beliefs that populated the crowd. Now it becomes evidently clear, with Trump's subsequent denouncement of these protests and an acceptance of the election results, at least passively, that if Trump had a plan, it no longer exists. And what happens to the Oedipal Triangle when one's father abandons them? If the fascistic movement just experienced fatherly abandonment, something which Freud saw as the greatest loss a person can experience, how can we see it as functioning, let alone as a salient threat with salient goals that may imminently destroy American democracy? Unless, of course, one sees the Oedipal Triangle as not applicable. Maybe this fascist movement is a Deleuzean rhizome, with no central point that it necessarily operates from, developing into a multiplicity of equal and non-hierarchical connections that all must be severed for the root to die. It seems as if many who perceive the fascist threat as on the brink of causing a civil war have projected this belief of rhizomatic fascism onto their enemy. This is ironic, considering how connected fascistic forms of social organization are to the Oedipal Triangle and the nuclear family, and how far away they are, for Deleuze and Guattari, from the rhizome. If fascism is, as Deleuze and Guattari conceive of it, the desire to be ruled, who do these fascists connect this desire to after Trump has abandoned them? As we will find out in the next few months, the answer will vary depending on the fascist you ask. The movement, becoming more splintered than even before Trump's abandonment, will cease to be a movement, but revert back to its idle state which can again be integrated crudely into the liberal democratic system as a voter bloc to be micro-targeted to. When we see Congresswoman Bobbert, for instance, attempting to bring her Glock into Congress and bragging about how she concealed carries in Congress or how she is trying to and making this an important element of her campaign, we can see her preparing for this event, thinking beyond Trump, thinking about how she can get the group of fascistic individuals who desire to be ruled by Trump within her particular district to continue to support her so she can continue to have status within the liberal democratic system. The idea that ideology functions not as a specific corrupted belief but as the presence of a lack of beliefs, which is itself corrupted by the commodity form, is undoubtedly an explicit rejection of the perceived traditional reading of Marx that I talked about before, that claims ideology to be a system of false beliefs that run contrary to reality, as seen in Mannheim and other sociological Marxists. How can we go beyond this understanding, enrich it while appreciating the work of Zizek's philosophical project especially as it relates to the combination of the psychoanalytic unconscious with the bourgeois ideological mechanisms of power. While I greatly appreciate Zizek's philosophical work and his rejection of the concept of ideology as false consciousness, how Zizek positions himself concerning this more traditional reading of Marx generates a commonality between these two strands of Marxism that is faulty. Both fundamentally view ideology as a necessary pejorative. This negative view of ideology 
prevents us from fully coming to terms with the specific nature of the protesters' belief system and their ideological affects. Why is it the case that so many in the Capitol Hill crowd desired to be ruled? What positive elements of the production of the protesters' social world came to constitute their fascistic impulses? In what sense is it a connection with their social world as opposed to a cutting off of reality? In a certain sense, I wish to have my cake and eat it too. See these protesters as operating under unconscious drives towards a desire to be ruled, as well as viewing these drives not as constituted by a lack of information, a poverty of knowledge, but a positively constructed social reality. This criticism of Zizek is similar to the criticism levied on Marx. In Marx's obsession with critiquing and rejecting bourgeois political economists, he began to share some of their fundamental misunderstandings about the nature of the capitalist market. Just as, in critiquing the traditional Marxist model of ideology, Zizek has fallen under some of the very same mistakes that they do. Marx takes for granted the views of Ricardo and Smith that a capitalist market is a free-for-all of different small capitalist firms who buy their inputs and sell their outputs on an unregulated market that sets these prices based upon the amalgamation of a multitude of independently acting small capitalist firms. Marx imagines that this inevitably leads capitalism to its destruction, as the market is not a rational system, as Ricardo and Smith imagine, but chaotic and irrational. Marx misses, of course, our contemporary reality, in which the market is not a free-for-all among many different small capitalist firms, which certainly does lead inevitably to collapse, but a planned economy based upon a few large firms who have intimate control over the share of the market related to the inputs they buy from and the outputs they sell to. See the book The People's Republic of Walmart for more on the planned nature of the contemporary capitalist market and how different it is from Marx's conception of it and how it functioned in Marx's historical context. Digression aside, Zizek falls into a similar trap with this traditional reading of ideology as being synonymous or at least interrelated with false consciousness. Zizek takes for granted the possibility of a reading of Marx in which ideology does not necessarily function as a pejorative, but explains the beginning point of all consciousness. Following this, our goal is not to imagine the end of ideology, but the end of ideological conflict. Zizek takes an essential point from Althusser, that to imagine a post-ideological world is itself an act of ideology. For Althusser, ideology is the product of human beings' practical lives, and science is a detached, objective method for truth generation with no direct reference to this ideological process. But how could this possibly be the case? Is it not Marx who claims that, quote, one basis for life and another for science is a priori a lie? Althusser admits the ideological past of science, but nonetheless views science as necessarily leaving a distance between it and its elements derived from ideology. Both of these thinkers, Zizek and Althusser, position themselves against the traditional view that ideology is false consciousness, yet both still fall into the trap of viewing ideology as pejorative, something which deceives the subject that has fallen under its spell. We must remove ourselves from the bourgeois idea of lack, where there is an objective reality for us to attain and grasp, the platonic sunlit realm of the forms, which is only denied to us through ideology and false consciousness. Instead of viewing ideology as cutting one off from this accessible, universal, idealist reality, we must understand it as a positive, productive capacity that constitutes a social reality, that connects one with the world. Of course, 
the bourgeois social reality is inherently contradictory. Yet it is not predicated on a scarcity of information, a deprivation of the real world in itself. To imply that this is the case runs into the necessarily anti-Marxist idea that scarcity is a natural phenomenon and not merely a product of production. One must see ideology as the life's working of an individual as it is imbued by encounters with the physical world. Marx writes in The German Ideology that, quote, This method of approach is not devoid of premises. It starts out from the real premises and does not abandon them for a moment. Its premises are men, not in any abstract fantastic isolation or abstract definition, but in their actual empirical processes of development under definite conditions. As soon as this actual life process is described, i.e. once the empirical work has been completed, history ceases to be a collection of dead facts, as it is with the empiricists, themselves still abstract, or an imagined activity of imagined subjects, as with the idealists. In this sense, false consciousness is not a necessary quality of ideology, but a product of ideological conflict and the division of labor, where one's limited, or potentially non-existent, phenomenological encounters with the mode of production cannot hope to help one understand its inner machinations. Quote, false consciousness only becomes truly such from the moment when a division of material and mental labor appears. From this moment onwards, consciousness can really flatter itself that it is really conceiving something without conceiving something real. From now on, consciousness is in a position to emancipate itself from the world and to proceed to the formations of pure theory, theology, philosophy, ethics, etc. Our social realities are fundamentally constituted by labor. The capitalist mode of production positively produces a social reality that reinforces itself. This does not allow those whose free, subjective labor capacity encounters capital and is subsequently bought up by it to produce surplus value to understand this straightforward economic relationship. Capital grafts itself onto the social reality that is a direct product of this encounter between free, subjective labor and objective capital and presupposes itself as the origin point the predicate which is required lest there be no social system that is legible. The early capitalists understood good and well the opposite nature of this relationship, that it is not the free labor capacity of an individual which presupposes capital, but the reverse. Capital, and the reproduction of capital through the extraction of surplus value, is entirely contingent upon subjective labor capacity. Marxists claim that an object's exchange value, a commodity, is derived from its capital V value, socially necessary abstract labor is an inherently revolutionary concept. Marx's caveat that we cannot tell from the mere taste of wheat who grew it demonstrates that the product is contingent not upon the social system, capital, but upon labor, the labor power which grows the wheat, which does so regardless of the social system which surrounded it. It does not matter whether the laborer produces the wheat, imagining it contingent on the divine right of kings and the body of the despot, or the employer-employee relationship and the body of capital itself. They still till the wheat the very same, with their own labor. In all of these cases, their social reality indicates to them directly that the particular social world in which they exist within is what allows them to produce a product. In reality, what it is contingent upon grows from a capacity, a power, stemming from their very fingertips. All socially necessary, or economically valuable, labor is fundamentally equal 
insofar as it functions as a portion of the total aggregate of socially necessary labor in a society. You cannot break this labor down into different categories of skill or of different sectors of the economy or of different general types. This has been true throughout all of history, yet it only becomes a legible concept at the dawn of capitalism. Here we can see the reason for Marx's hatred of bourgeois intellectuals who, instead of analyzing capitalism as equally contingent and transcendable as the previous economic system, feudalism, saw it as the end point of human social organization, the newfound permanent base of our social reality. It is easy to understand how many have interpreted the rage exercised by Marx in the German ideology and elsewhere for this manifestation of bourgeois ideology as meaning that, one, ideology is a pejorative for those who believe capitalism to not be contingent, and two, necessarily connected to false consciousness. In the bourgeois ideologist context, this false consciousness comes from the division of labor, in which their production of philosophy or generally literature which they produce constructs a social reality that is in no way contingent upon how the actual mode of production functions. Marx's critique of ideologists, and here one can replace ideologist with intellectual who embodies the social milieu of a system and preserve the primary meaning, was that they did not understand their worldview to be contingent upon a social-slash-material structure as opposed to universally valid. Marx cannot possibly hope to render his own science as an exception to this criticism. To do so would be to fall into the same trap he is accusing many of the ideologists of. Marx is aware of the historical determination of his analysis. It is the fact that Marx's work is historically contingent that creates the baseline critique he extends to bourgeois ideologists. My position entirely refutes the quote-unquote traditional reading of ideology that Zizek is working to critique, but in a radically different way. What is required here is not an objective reality that can be drawn from the realm of the forms. It is not a worldview that is purely rational and logical, as opposed to all previously articulated views contingent on a social world imbued by material production, whether bourgeois or feudal or ancient. As Aristotle understood, humans are inherently social animals. Plato's goal of pure self-sufficiency is delusional. In Capital Volume 1, Marx actually speaks of Aristotle and his expressions of economic value, saying that, quote, he clearly enunciates that the money form of commodities is only the further development of the simple form of value, i.e. of the expression of the value of one commodity in some other commodity taken at random. For here, he says, five beds equals one house is not to be distinguished from five beds equals so much money, unquote. Aristotle, though, stops right before being able to understand the existence of an equal thing, a common substance that connects the value of a bed with the house of with money. For Marx, he does so due to the antique-slash-ancient society he existed in. Living in a society whose mode of production was slave-based, Aristotle was unable to conceive all labor as equal and equivalent, and subsequently generate an idea of capital V value. Aristotle's general encounters with the mode of production and the subsequent ideological belief that slave labor is below that of free labor denied him an ability to understand Marx's economic category of value, value produced by abstract, socially necessary labor. Quote, the brilliancy of Aristotle's genius is shown by this alone, that he discovered, in the expression of the value of commodities, a relation of equality. The peculiar conditions of the society in which he lived, alone, prevented him from discovering what in truth, was at the bottom of this equality. We do not wish to do away with ideology. Instead, 
we search for the early developments of an ideology of the proletariat. It is a reality that is imbued and contingent upon a social world, an encounter with production, etc., but it is aimed towards the dissolution of the current economic system. For instance, in What is to be Done, Lenin considers the ideology of the proletariat as considerably valuable to the socialist project. This viewpoint, for Marx, is a fundamentally a scientific one. To not recognize that, one, capitalism is equally as contingent and transcendable as previous economic systems, and two, that there is an imminent proletarian tendency to overthrow the system renders one's analysis unscientific. Marxist science, a science that nevertheless comes out of encounters with the bourgeois mode of production, is one that exists towards socialism for the proletariat. It is a hermeneutics of emancipatory intentions. This science recognizes class struggle in the capitalist system and reacts by understanding the system as contingent and transcendable. Most bourgeois ideologists are unable to recognize this tendency and are therefore unable to be scientific. This is admittedly a controversial position, as Marx typically refers to ideology as a product of the dominant economic system. How could it be the case that Marx's position was ideological if the dominant economic system was not communism? This is because Marx recognized the capacity that ideologists of the bourgeois era had to fully comprehend the historical developments towards communism and subsequently take the side of the proletariat, as many feudal ideologists had done on the eve of the French Revolution. The question of whether these ideologists critiquing feudalism is a scientific one is one that Marx sort of does not consider. I mean, I'm sure if you were to expand on this idea, you could meaningfully make that argument. The ideologist who recognizes the historical tendency towards the end of the capitalist economic system and embraces the development of a dictatorship of the proletariat, through an analysis that comes from a bourgeois milieu, from encounters with the bourgeois mode of production, is even an apt description of Marx himself. Again, ideologist is not a necessary pejorative. It is simply that most bourgeois ideologists are unscientific, are unable to do what Marx has done. Marx's science is not separated from ideology. Marx very openly utilized bourgeois political economists, Ricardo Smith, as the source for the most basic economic categories for which a scientific analysis was possible. It is only during the onset of capitalism in the early attempts by bourgeois political economists to critique feudalism, that the economic categories of labor, capital, market, and value become legible as the primary methods for which the economy is to be analyzed. Marx's critique of Ricardo and Smith is not of the economic categories they utilize, but their inability to see capitalism as equally temporary and contingent as the previous systems they were critiquing. In the same way, bourgeois political economy first came to understand the feudal the ancient, and the Asiatic societies as soon as the self-criticism of the bourgeois society had commenced. As soon as Marx had the capacity to critique the bourgeois society, he then had the capacity to meaningfully understand these previous modes of production. Through the categories invented by bourgeois political economists like Ricardo and Smith. As Hegel believed, quotes, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only when the shades of dusk are falling, unquote. Only when these categories are used to critique capitalism itself that science in the Marxian sense becomes possible. This is not a science that has been exercised from any material conditions. For if it had been, 
it would be idealist and not materialist. But it also does not fold into a crude historical relativism for which there was no objective truth that can reach back in history and better understand these historical processes retrospectively. One cannot have it both ways, of a science with Popperian positivism, which makes itself clear outside of historical necessity, and a Marxist materialism in which one's social reality, the very foundation of social consciousness, is contingent upon the mode of production. Even the natural sciences, for Marx, are contingent upon the material conditions they grow out of. In The German Ideology, he writes that, Feuerbach speaks in particular of the perceptions of natural science. He mentions secrets which are disclosed only to the eye of the physicist and chemist. But where would natural science be without industry and commerce? Even this pure natural science is provided with an aim, as with its material, only through trade and industry, through the sensuous activity of man. The general orientation of any science is necessarily ideological, which is to say that it is material. We can think of André Bazin's critique of Marxist historian George Sadoul's idealism as similar to Marx's critique of Feuerbach. Sadoul viewed the history of cinema as beginning outside of scientific discovery and physical experiments with technical objects. Cinema being understood by Sadoul as an idealist phenomenon that, quote, the concepts man had of cinema existed, so to speak, fully armed in their minds, as if in some platonic heaven, unquote. It is precisely in the treatment of cinema as a purely idealist phenomena that required Sadoul to develop an idealist position on the subject. We can see here that we must avoid idealism by embedding science directly within the working of ideology and rejecting the positivist position that science functions based upon abstract principles that are not historically and materially contingent. It is not ideology itself that we wish to free society from, but merely ideological conflict. Ideological conflict coming from a system that is inherently contradictory. Ideology is not a pejorative that obfuscates and prevents the individual from seeing what is truly there. Even when Zizek agrees that there is no underlying reality that we are attempting to unmask through ideological critique, he still depends on ideology as a pejorative, an illness that must necessarily be cured. Where does this analysis stand concerning the Capitol Hill protests? It appears as if it makes our analysis of the fascist ideological beliefs more Deleuzean than anything else. Zizek views ideology as functioning through a lack of belief. The protesters' baseline social reality is ideological, mainly through how their libido is mediated by an unconscious theater of representations that produces the symbolic. Where this leaves Zizek's philosophical project is a critique of ideology purely at its unconscious manifestation. Ideology is a negation, and its critique is the negation of the negation, hence one of Zizek's books which is titled Less Than Nothing. But what if there is far more to the functions of the unconscious than this negation? More than simply dream, tragedy, and myth. In a certain sense, this lack radically limits our capacity to understand the social mechanisms which intimately shape the protesters' decisions and desires that drove them to show up on January 6th. It severely limits our capacity to understand exactly why they want Trump as a fascist ruler. How can we view ideology as a positive construction of social reality? A social reality which nevertheless functions primarily through the unconscious, yet is invested directly in the world, laid out to bear for all to analyze in social production. In this way, we dodge the issue that affects both the traditional Marxist reading of ideology and Zizek's while also maintaining the use of Zizek's idea of ideology as functioning not through the explicit thoughts of subjects, but through their unconscious.
Deleuze and Guattari's method of analysis integrates desire into, or alongside, the material structures and sees these two processes, the production of desire and the production of the economy, as fundamentally inseparable. One may view this as an idealist position that breaks from Marxist materialism. Still, Deleuze and Guattari argue that it is, in fact, a more radically materialist position that can explain why our desires, beliefs, actions, etc. are shaped and controlled by the political economy. In Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, we see a shift from ideology to newology, seeing ideology as preventing a critique of the political economy that introduces desire and affects as being related to the infrastructure, the material base, not the superstructure. In a certain sense, this position helps encapsulate the problems facing the Zizekian understanding of the Capitol Hill protest. How have the libidinal flows of desire allowed for those who stormed the American Temple of Democracy to do so? And to do so as successfully as they did? This is both a question concerning the protesters' desires and those in the security apparatus that- I will further elaborate on this position in the premium episode for this week, which can be accessed for $2 a month on patreon.com slash liveagar both in written form and audio form, as well as accessed in written form for $2 a month on Medium and Substack. Again, it's changed to Liveagar instead of Liveposting. That's my, I guess, new pen name, so to speak.